Today's episode is brought to you by Normal Now, a campaign powered by Electrify America. Because some people think electric cars are just a weird new trend, but the truth is, they're normal now. Welcome to Skim This. The 2020 election is less than 40 days away, but in many states, ballots have already been mailed out and are already getting sent back in, meaning it's time to step back and look at how Democrats and Republicans are making their big pitch to voters in the home stretch of the campaign, and how they're trying to reach you, the voter, literally everywhere. Also, Saturday is World Contraception Day, but while safe and reliable forms of contraception are now more available than ever, access and affordability are still a huge issue for women around the world, including in the US. But before we talk about any of that, we need to start with a quick update on two developing stories this week, playing out at the UN in New York and in Washington, DC. For the past week, the nation has been in mourning over the loss of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Last Friday, the icon died of complications from metastatic pancreatic cancer. Her legacy includes everything from her decisions about gender equality to her style choices. So if you have a credit card in your name or a bank account, you have RBG to thank. And now, after a legendary career, she'll break one final glass ceiling. This week, she'll become the first woman to lie in state in the U.S. Capitol. Ginsburg's death also leaves a vacancy on the Supreme Court, a vacancy that already has politicians on both sides scrambling. Here's how filling a Supreme Court seat usually works. The president is in charge of nominating someone after that person is vetted by the White House. The vetting process involves surveys that are hundreds of pages long and involve everything from speaking fees to previous clients and published writings. Oh, and an FBI background check. Then, once someone is nominated, there's a confirmation hearing in the Senate. That hearing is televised and conducted by the 22 members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's a chance for senators to get a sense of where the nominee stands on a number of big legal issues, like Roe v. Wade or LGBTQ rights. Finally, there's a vote. All 100 senators get to cast a yay or nay vote on the nominee. The nominee can be confirmed to the Supreme Court by a simple majority vote. So on paper, filling an empty Supreme Court seat isn't that complex. But in practice, it can get heated. And the process to fill RBG's seat has already gotten particularly messy. A fierce fight over the future of the Supreme Court. An epic political clash looms. President Trump promising to fill the vacant seat without delay. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of speculation about who will replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Here's where things stand. President Trump said he'll nominate his choice to replace Justice Ginsburg this weekend. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says the Senate will move forward with a vote on that nominee. But it's an election year, which makes things complicated. As a reminder, during President Obama's second term in 2016, Justice Antonin Scalia died. Obama nominated Judge Merrick Garland as his replacement, but Republicans, who were the majority in the Senate, said they would vote on a new justice only after the election, which at that point was over eight months away. Here's what the current head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, said back in 2016. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in 
the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. But this time around, with the 2020 election coming up in less than 40 days, Republicans are trying to speed up the nomination process, while Democrats are trying to slow it down. Since they don't have any tools of their own to stop a nomination, they were counting on Republican senators who hold a 53 to 47 majority to agree to delay a vote until after the November election. So far, two Republican lawmakers, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, said they'd wait to confirm a nominee until after the election. But they were the only ones. No other Republicans have come out in favor of a delay, meaning Trump's nominee is likely to receive a vote on the Senate floor. Keep an eye out this weekend for Trump's announcement of his SCOTUS pick, and know that his nominee is pretty much certain to get confirmed. A final thing to keep in mind, this will be Trump's third justice on the Supreme Court, meaning the court is likely to have a 6-3 conservative majority in the future, instead of the more narrow 5-4 conservative majority it has now. And that's a big deal, since ideological swings on the Supreme Court are pretty rare and can impact decisions for decades to come. For the latest on the Supreme Court battle, subscribe to our newsletter, The Daily Skim. Our second developing story this week played out at the United Nations in New York, where this year's big General Assembly meetings are underway. The gridlock across Midtown, heads of state and diplomats from nearly 200 countries. Bumper to bumper traffic. It's horrible. Cement trucks, barricades, roads closed. Oh, wait, that was last year. Because this year, for the first time ever, the General Assembly went remote. And it wasn't even live. Instead, presidents, prime ministers, and other heads of state sent in their long-winded speeches as pre-recorded videos. For a normally exciting event where a lot of news can happen, this week was a bit drier. But we did want to talk about one major theme we saw playing out. The Great COVID Vaccine Competition. This year marks the 75th anniversary of the UN, the kind of occasion you'd hope would bring out the best in the world, especially when there's a pandemic. In his opening speech, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called COVID a dress rehearsal for future global challenges, and he called on countries to rally together. We must be united. We have seen when countries go in their own direction, the virus goes in every direction. We must act in solidarity, so how did that go? Well, a lot of world leaders talked the talk. The leaders of Nigeria, Sri Lanka, and the Philippines demanded that a COVID vaccine be made available to everyone, affordably. China's president even called a COVID vaccine a global public good, which usually means something provided to people without anyone making a profit. But one reason so many countries felt the need to make that point is because there are a bunch of signs that the distribution of a COVID vaccine isn't going to be simple or harmonious. While some drug companies like Johnson & Johnson say they'll sell their vaccines at cost, as in without making a profit, others are hoping to cash in. Moderna, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, hopes to charge more than $30 a dose, which some experts fear could put the vaccine out of reach for people in low-income countries. And that's only one problem. According to the humanitarian aid group Oxfam, wealthy countries that represent just 
13% of the world's population have already made deals with pharmaceutical companies to buy up more than half of the world's supply of COVID vaccines. Guterres actually coined a term for this behavior in his speech, vaccine nationalism. We know some countries are reportedly making side deals exclusively for their own populations. Such vaccine nationalism is not only unfair, it is self-defeating. None of us is safe until all of us are safe. Everybody knows that. So where did the U.S. land on all of this? In his own speech, which he taped at the White House, President Trump said the U.S. was already mass-producing three promising vaccines. He said the U.S. will, quote, distribute a vaccine, though he left it at that. And in his closing remarks, didn't seem embarrassed to say the U.S. was looking out for itself. I am proudly putting America first, just as you should be putting your countries first. That's okay. That's what you should be doing. Some people think electric cars are weird, but when you think about it, it used to seem pretty weird to get your news from a little voice coming out of your headphones too. Like podcasts, electric cars are normal now. With longer ranges, you can take them just about anywhere. And with lots of charging stations and faster charging times, it's easy to charge up on the way. Plus, with lots of affordable models and less routine maintenance, electric cars may actually save you money. Find out more about how electric cars are normal at normalnow.com. This year, Election Day is going to feel a lot different. November 3rd is officially Election Day, when you can head to the polls if you plan a vote in person. But depending on where you live, voting might already be underway. According to the New York Times, election officials in 21 states have already started sending out mail-in ballots. And in one state, North Carolina, nearly 200,000 of those ballots have already been mailed back in and counted. So even though there are technically still over five weeks to go until the election, we're running out of time to step back and look at how the Democrats and Republicans are approaching the home stretch of the campaign. So this week, we're going to be looking at three key components of their political strategies, geography, demographics, and voter outreach to see how the race is shaping up and how you're likely to be hit up by both parties in the weeks to come. But first, let's talk finances. Show me the money. That's it, brother. You got to go. Show me the money. I need to feel you, Gary. Show me the money. Both President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden have raised some serious cash in this campaign so far. Add in the amount of money raised by their parties and political action groups, and these fundraising totals are even higher. Think nearly a billion dollars for Biden and over $1.3 billion for Trump. President Trump raised a lot of cash early on in the campaign, but new reports say he's lost that edge. In August, Biden actually pulled in more in contributions, and Trump now has less money in the bank. That's caused the president to start sticking to a budget, like reducing advertising in some key states and limiting the number of staff that travel with him to events. During a one-month stretch from early August to early September, Biden outspent Trump on TV ads four to one, and the president is reportedly weighing putting some of his own money into his campaign. But don't count Trump out on the spending front. He's still got hundreds of millions of dollars in his piggy bank, so there's a lot of election spending to come from both of these candidates and their parties. 
Which brings us to our first dynamic to watch in the countdown to the election, where the two candidates are directing their focus. And in this case, the answer is pretty much swing states and battlegrounds. Because as a reminder, presidential candidates need 270 electoral college votes to win. And since a lot of states are already solidly blue or red, like California or Mississippi, that puts the spotlight on the states that are up for grabs. Some of them should sound familiar since they've played this role for years. States like Florida, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. The fights in these classic swing states are very real. If you live in Pennsylvania and feel like you're being shown political ads nonstop, that's not in your head. Both candidates have shelled out more money running TV ads in Pennsylvania than anywhere in the country. To shed some light on how the Democrats view their election map, we spoke with Wendy Wallace. She's the deputy executive director for the Democratic Governors Association. I think as most people who are paying attention will remember, one of the things that we're really focused on is how do we get Joe Biden to 270 from the Electoral College? And reaching that marker really requires Democrats to focus on winning back swing states like Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, places that we lost in 2016. Those are states that former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, essentially sealing her defeat and handing President Trump the White House. But this time around, some of those states are back in play. The Democratic strategy also includes trying to make a play in states that don't traditionally go blue. Also to look at emerging states like Arizona, places that we have seen kind of shifting our way for a while um, that we think we can capitalize on. Democrats have been eyeing places like Texas and Georgia for years, thinking one day they might flip them to blue, but it's still anyone's guess whether those emerging battleground states are ready to come into play. That is like the $20 million question. And if I could answer that, I would be on every, you know, morning show and <laughs> everyone would be clamoring to talk to me. Book deals would just fall from the sky. And just like the Dems have their eyes on some states that have been voting red in recent presidential elections, Trump's campaign is hoping to score some upsets in classic Democratic strongholds like New Mexico and Minnesota. We checked in with Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel to ask how a Republican victory this fall could come together. I think these are key states that both parties are heavily focusing on, which are Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, which hadn't gone Republican for a long time. From an RNC perspective, we're also looking at Senate races in states like Montana, we're in New Mexico, and we also are looking to expand the map for the president in states like Nevada, Minnesota, and New Hampshire. And that brings us to our second big thing to watch, the people, or demos, that both parties are hoping to win over, including Hispanic voters. 2020 will be the first time Hispanic voters are the largest minority voting group in the U.S., and they're expected to make up 13% of eligible voters nationwide. And in certain closely watched states like Florida and Arizona, they make up an even larger share of the voting base and could play a big role come election day. That's leading both presidential campaigns, along with local candidates, to push to reach these voters. They're hiring Latino vote directors and running tons of Spanish language ads. That investment adds up to hundreds of millions of campaign dollars. Latino voters are a group Republicans are going after, especially in states that can go either way. 
Nevada, we narrowly lost in 2016. And part of our focus for the past several years has been outreach to the Hispanic community, uh, doing a lot of our trainings in Spanish, reaching Span uh, voters through Spanish media, uh, and also building a field program around the Spanish, Hispanic community. So Nevada's an ideal state for that type of outreach. But Wallace told us that campaign tactics are just that, tactics. And it's on both parties to win voters. Demographics are not destiny. I think people get really excited about the opportunity of younger, more diverse voters turning out. But just because there are more Latino voters, you still have to fight for every single vote. There are an enormous number of Latinos turning 18 in this country every single day, and it is our job to win those voters over. Another group that Dems and Republicans are vying for, suburbanites. That's because people in the suburbs make up around half of the entire electorate, specifically suburban women. Trump has repeatedly singled out suburban women on Twitter this summer, promising law and order in response to nationwide protests. But it's still unclear how that message is being received, especially given how suburban women in some places have expressed their support for the Black Lives Matter movement and recent protests. Support in the suburbs helped Trump win in 2016, but in the 2018 midterm elections, Republicans weren't so lucky in the suburbs. And now those voters are back in the headlines again this election year. That's because in the areas around cities like Detroit and Philadelphia, recent data shows the president's support among suburban voters is slipping. Meanwhile, other suburbs in states like Wisconsin are leaning pretty solidly red, giving both parties a sense that this suburban voting bloc could swing in their favor. When trying to determine which voters to reach, McDaniel told us the Republicans have the numbers to back up their outreach, meaning... The other key focus for us has been our data. Our investment in data early on, uh, since 2012, we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars. So that becomes our compass as to which voters we actually want to target and then what message resonates. And the third big thing to watch as the election heads into the home stretch is how the presidential candidates and their parties try to reach out to you, the voter. As far as the candidates themselves are concerned, their approaches are pretty different. President Trump is going back to his tried and true rallies, while Biden is really focused on social distancing. And he's gotten pretty good at Zoom. Think no crowds and a lot of virtual events. For both parties, national and local candidates have had to change how they usually campaign because of COVID-19. But Wallace told us that hasn't necessarily been a bad thing. This is the first time I am talking to you from my house as opposed to like out knocking people's doors. Um, I think there's been, you know, a large pivot to phone banks. I think at the same time, people like you and I are tired of Zoom calls. There is a, a part of it that gives access to people who may otherwise not have been able to participate. Um, there are a lot of barriers to entry for in-person events. Um, not the least of which is time and commute. Just like when your mom got on Facebook, campaigns are now trying to reach voters in totally new ways. While classic TV ads and radio spots are still a staple, Wallace told us campaigns are getting creative this year. 
I think every cycle we take the opportunity to innovate. Um, one of the things that I was talking to uh, Governor Cooper's campaign manager about in North Carolina was the price of ads on Hulu, the price of ads on, I think, Pandora, Spotify, like kind of some of those other places where you reach millennials. I have a car, but don't really listen to AM, FM radio. I have not had cable in years. You know, I'm, I'm 38 years old, so I'm like at that crux where people sort of pivot one way or the other. You're gonna see ads on YouTube when you go on there. Um, Instagram has been really great for candidates to show their a little bit of their personality. And then of course you have like the standbys of Twitter and Facebook. As for McDaniel and the Republicans, shaking things up in 2020 means building up a good old listserv. I think what we did new from 2016 is an active effort to purchase or expand our email list and our SMS capability so that we could directly contact voters. It's been a huge investment for us to grow our list from 11 million to well over 30 million uh, so that we can directly communicate with voters. Remember, uh, only 63, not only, but 63 million people voted for President Trump. So being able to contact over half of them directly is, is a big uh, boost for us. McDaniels also says when physical door knocking is less of a thing, having millions of cell phone numbers in their database lets Republican candidates perform digital door knocks to remind people to get out and vote. And she said, even though snail mail sounds old, just like records, it's so old, it's cool again. Mail is something that people don't think of as being as impactful, but a lot of people don't get mail the way they used to. They have Venmo and PayPal. And so that mail push to get your absentee ballot has had a lot of impact. So add all of this up, and it means whether you're on social media, have a cell phone, watch shows on streaming, or go on the occasional midnight YouTube spiral, or just have a plain old mailbox, chances are you'll be seeing ads from candidates trying to win your vote. It's a lot, but think of it this way. Once you've voted, you don't need to feel guilty for putting that ad on mute. So what's the skim? The stakes in the 2020 election couldn't be higher. And that has Democratic and Republican political strategists getting creative. In addition to looking at traditional swing states in order to put together the 270 electoral college votes needed to win, they're also looking to new states that could change up the electoral map. In addition to treating the US map like a risk board, part of the path to victory includes winning over key voting groups like Latino voters and suburban women. And finally, in order to actually close the deal with these voters, campaigns are reaching out wherever and whenever they can. Team Biden has been putting out 10-second social media ads perfectly designed for TikTok attention spans, while Trump's campaign has bought out ads on YouTube's homepage on Election Day, one of the internet's most valuable pieces of real estate. So that's what they're doing. Now it's up to you. And McDaniel says it's important to do your homework before voting take the time to get to know the candidates, but beyond that, know the policies and really understand how those policies would work in your life. Oh, and if you've already made up your mind about the presidential race, remember to look down ballot, where everyone from governors to even local judges can play a big role in your life. Fill out your ballot completely. 
the presidential and now the Senate races are getting a lot of attention and they always do in presidential years. But I cannot stress enough that the people who have the most impact on your day-to-day -day life are farther down the ballot. Governors, mayors, state legislatures. For all your voting needs, like checking your registration to voting by mail for the first time, the skim has got you covered. Go to theskim.com slash 2020 to learn more. Got weekend plans? Well, whether you're shopping for the latest fall fashion loungewear or planning your next Zoom party that you haven't admitted that you're totally tired of, Saturday is World Contraception Day. So we're talking birth control. What are you doing? Did you eat one of those? Did you eat one of those? I ate Saturday. Don't worry, we looked into it. That kid should be fine. September 26th is World Contraception Day, when organizations and individuals around the world raise awareness about contraceptive options and rally young people to make informed decisions about reproductive and sexual health. That includes family planning, which doesn't just mean better health for both mother and child. Many global organizations say that reproductive health is also about empowering women economically and helping to achieve gender equality. Experts say that when women get to decide when they want to start a family, they have more control over things that can be really impacted by an unplanned pregnancy, like financial stability, when they want to work, or their education. So the key message of World Contraception Day is that every pregnancy should be a wanted pregnancy. According to recent data, in 2011, almost half of all pregnancies in the US were unwanted. According to the studies, that meant 2.8 million pregnancies just that year. Though this number is the lowest level in 30 years. But even though the rate of unintended pregnancies around the world has been declining, that still leaves 74 million women in generally low and middle income countries who have unintended pregnancies each year. Dr. Stephanie Frazen is an OBGYN and a family planning fellow at the University of California, San Francisco. And we asked her what policies around the world contribute to the number of unintended pregnancies still being so high. In countries where there are more restrictive policies, there are actually more abortions happening because those restrictive policies tend to go hand in hand with restriction around access to contraceptives. So there's just more unplanned pregnancies happening. Um, we know that that's associated with much higher morbidity and mortality um, for people who are pregnant. In the U.S., studies have shown that abortion rates are actually decreasing as access to reproductive health care expands. And Frazen says that's just one benefit of women taking the lead on the decisions that affect them. Anytime that people have bodily autonomy, they're making a plan for their body, and whether that's to be pregnant or not be pregnant, to choose a contraceptive method or not, we know that that's associated with them being able to like live the, their life and plan their lives. So experts say access to contraception and other maternal health services is a global issue. And surprise, surprise, COVID-19 isn't making things better. When many countries went into lockdown and hospitals and resources were strained, women weren't able to access normal reproductive services. Not only were women worried about contracting the disease, they were also impacted by travel restrictions and supply chain disruptions meaning delays in getting contraceptives they had access to just days before. A report by Marie Stopes International, a reproductive health nonprofit, predicts that 
There will be 1.5 million more unsafe abortions and over 3,000 more maternal deaths this year. Because of the pandemic, millions of women weren't able to access MSI services like contraception and safe legal abortions. So between the COVID-19 pandemic and the existing global challenges that make it difficult for women to access reproductive health care, what's the plan to try and fix things? Last year, the United Nations published its report on sustainable development goals. It calls on countries to guarantee universal access to sexual and reproductive health care services by 2030. Because as it turns out, without having control over reproductive health, not just women, but entire societies are affected. Since when women have control over the quote, number, timing, and spacing of their children, it empowers them to study, work, and raise their families out of poverty meaning they're in the driver's seat. A report by the McKinsey Global Institute even did the math and found that advancing women's equality could add $12 trillion to the global GDP by 2025. And while we've still got a long way to go before we get there, like a lot of things, there's always a place to start. In this case, that's with education. As providers, it's so important for us to recognize the importance of recognizing people's choices and really recognizing that as providers, we, we're we just the keepers of extra information, but that our patients are the experts of their own body and that we can just provide them information and then they should make the choice of what's right for them. While World Contraception Day may only be one day, this is an issue that's year-round and worldwide. To learn more about World Contraception Day, we've left a few links to resources in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next week. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. Thank you.